For this evening, I'd like to dwell on one of the scriptures that uh, Brother Werner referenced in his sermon uh, just this past Sunday morning. He, he uh, made some uh, statements from it, and I'd like to dwell on that uh, in a little bit more depth, as he just touched on it briefly. Uh, and that is found in Second Chronicles chapter 7. Second Chronicles chapter 7. Uh, this is one of the history books of the kings. It comes with the Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. And this is the second book of Chronicles, chapter 7. And uh, a little bit of an introduction uh, where we are in this. This is God appearing to Solomon um, the second time, or again, uh, after he had prayed his dedication prayer in the temple. Chapter 6 is about his dedication prayer in the temple, uh, a magnificent structure that was just built uh, to the honor and glory of Jehovah God. And uh, Solomon had a prayer there of dedication. There are some specific things he mentioned in that prayer, and God answers his prayer, uh, some specific statements that we will examine for our time of worship this evening. And so we'll begin with verse 13 in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 13. God speaking, actually, verse 12. Uh, and the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven, that there be no rain, or if I command the locust to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now mine eyes shall be open, and mine ears attend unto the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have cho- for now have I chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever. And mine eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. Let's stop our reading here at verse 16. Solomon's prayer in the temple, if we refer back to it uh, briefly, in chapter 6, verse 14, Solomon makes acknowledgement of who God is, as he said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven nor in the earth, which keeps covenant and showest mercy unto thy servants that walk before thee with all their hearts. Solomon is acknowledging who God is and acknowledging uh, his character. He mentions two things particular about his character, that he's a God that keeps covenant and shows mercy. One who keeps his promises, one who keeps the agreements a covenant, very serious agreement that he has made uh, with people. In this case, um, he's speaking to, to Solomon. He's made covenant with Solomon. He's made covenants with David, uh, covenants with earlier patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, previous to that, covenant with Noah, uh, and so forth. And uh, it's, the scriptures constantly remind us that he is one who keeps his covenant, even though often the human party uh, breaks the covenant, does, isn't fully living up to the terms. But he also shows mercy. This is the other aspect of his character, that he shows mercy. 
And this is that Hebrew word again that I've often referred to, hesed, um, that is often translated as mercy. Getting what we do not deserve. And this is important. We'll touch on the character of God uh, in a little bit uh, as we go through these scriptures. But Solomon also acknowledges here that uh, he hears prayers. Verse 21, he says, Hearken therefore unto the supplications, that's requests of thy servant and of thy people Israel. Uh, He acknowledges that God is a God who hears prayers. The specific answer that God gave to Solomon references verse 26 and 27, when Solomon, in his prayer, refers to these things. He says, When heaven is shut up, and there is no rain, because they have sinned against thee, yet if they pray towards this place, and confess thy name, and turn from their sin, when thou dost afflict them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of thy servants and of thy people Israel. When thou hast taught them a good way. Verse 28, if there be dearth in the land, that's a famine, or a pestilence, or blasting, or mildew, and so forth. All of these kinds of plagues that Solomon says, if this happens, and your people pray, hear from heaven. And God reassures Solomon that, yes, I will hear uh, this. So we move on to now, if we examine a little bit with uh, verse... Uh, 12 of what we had read here. The Lord appeared to Solomon and said, I've heard thy prayer, acknowledging that he does answer prayer, and this is the Lord God, affirming who he is. Who he is. Who are we dealing with? We're not just dealing with another person. We're dealing with Almighty God, the King of the universe. And gives us this assurance here. Gives Solomon this assurance If I shut up heaven and there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour, or if I send pestilence among my people. So the first theme here God emphasizes here is he's referring to himself. If he sends these things, he is God who is in charge of all creation and everything that takes place therein. And he takes ownership of these things that happen. And as we can see, that he is the one that sends these things uh, and instigates them and causes them uh, often. Uh, When they happen, he is the cause. That doesn't mean that he's always the cause. There are times when it's the natural order of the flow of weather and so forth and and, and what happens uh, in how he has created this world to function. But there's numerous specific times in the scripture where God specifically states he is the cause of these things. For example, in Egypt, uh, to get their attention as they're slaves in Egypt and he's getting their attention. Uh, that they may know that I am the Lord is a phrase that uh, Moses had, uh, God gave to Moses about why these plagues are happening. Another time and period where there was a huge drought, three and a half years or so in the time of Israel during the, the wicked reign of King Ahab, during the time of the prophet Elijah. And Elijah foretells this, of course, by the Spirit of God, that there is not going to be rain, nor dew even, for these three years. Uh, and indeed, it comes to pass. And it's very clear that uh, God is using those means at that time to try to get his people's attention because they had turned to uh, idolatry. So if we 
pause for a moment and just ponder at the nature of God that does this. Because this poses some questions. Because people, uh, maybe you and I at times, we will misunderstand or or wonder why uh, God does these things. And, and questions can come up. Well, if God is loving and kind, like he says he is, he is, that's not a question, but we might sometimes wonder about that or doubt that. Well, why would he do this? Because we wouldn't see these kinds of actions uh, as consistent with someone who loves us. And God tells us why. Um, but first of all, we uh, let's take a step back and understand the nature of the world that we are in. Uh, as in, we are in a fallen world because of the sin of Adam and Eve at the very beginning. And so we are in a fallen world that brings with it sickness and death and suffering and disease and things not functioning right uh, and so forth. And so that is the nature of the world in which we are in. And so bad things will happen. And it's very clear that the Lord works through bad things, sometimes causing them or orchestrating such events in order to get our attention. And uh, we will uh, look at that a little bit. It's not because he takes pleasure or wants to destroy people. We'll look at verses that precisely uh, describe God not wanting to destroy people, but wanting to save us and using means such as this to get our uh, attention. If we would look at one of those references as the prophet Ezekiel describes in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. Uh, the uh, prophet Ezekiel is saying, uh, the Lord is speaking to Ezekiel. This is what we should say here. Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. Can you hear God pleading as, as he's speaking this to Ezekiel to in turn give this message to the people? Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? I see here a God, in a sense, stretching out his arms. Why? It doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to have those calamities. We don't have to have this evil upon you. If you would only turn from your evil ways, then things would be different. But the Lord has to use sometimes very drastic measures in order to get their attention. And would we think that we're any different? That he would have to use drastic measures for us? Sometimes he would have to use drastic measures for you to get your attention. Because when things are going well, we tend to drop our guard, so to speak, or become lax and become distracted with things, and even worse than distractions. And we'll, we'll get into that as we move through the passage. But looking at another reference now in the New Testament, as the Apostle Paul is describing this about those that continue to reject God. Um, this is uh, Romans chapter 2, starting with verse 3. Now, Romans chapter 1 and 2 describes the downward trend of the morality of mankind and what happens when people can persistently reject the worship of God and turn to idols, uh, idolatry. Uh, that is inevitable. If one rejects the worship of the true God, there are other things that inevitably happen in worship because we are creatures made to worship. And so we worship one thing or another. 
So verse four, uh, verse three here. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering? This describes the riches of the goodness of God, his forbearance, long suffering, his patience, not knowing that it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. That's the whole point of everything that God does is drawing us, drawing every person in a personal way to a meaningful relationship with him. And if it doesn't work through patience and forbearance and kindness and and blessing, then he does it with more drastic means, more escalating measures which are intended to get our attention. Indeed, it's not much different than a parent reaching out to a child who chooses to rebel. Think of, of let's say, a, a young child, a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a five-year-old, uh, that uh, would say to the parent, I don't need you. Leave me alone. I don't, why, why? they don't always understand uh, the parent's rules, um, the parent's limitations or danger. And a parent says, don't go there. Don't do that. And a child wants to sometimes rebelliously break free from these things. Well, their their knowledge and their their understanding of of the world and what's dangerous and what's healthy um, is is so limited. They they hardly know anything. But yet, in their own mind, they are wise in their own eyes. Sometimes they they think they know, and so they sometimes have the attitude towards the parent. Leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. Uh, I, why do you need to be so uh, restrictive and so forth? Let me do what I want. And a loving parent does not just leave the child to their own devices, knowing that if a child left in that state will self-destruct. They will hurt themselves. Uh, they will destroy uh, themselves and hurt others. And, and so a parent needs to use um, measures that are intended to save that child, intended to teach them how life works, so that they live in accordance with reality, that they don't uh, hurt themselves. Well, that is exactly true in a spiritual sense. God is the ultimate reality, and he reaches out to us in terms of meaningful relationship so that we live in accordance with what is ultimate reality, which he has set in motion. And that includes, of course, not only the physical things that we see and are more readily acknowledged, Sometimes even that, rebellious people do self-destructive things that other rational people see are destructive, but yet people in their rebellious state sometimes choose uh, things that hurt themselves and, and hurt others. But there's even more so things in the spiritual realm which we don't understand, which some of which is revealed in the Holy Scriptures. And therefore, we do well to know the Word of God. That's why He gave it to us in revealing it uh, to us, so that we know how to live in accordance with what is ultimate reality. And therefore, he needs to give us consequences, sometimes escalating consequences, when we stray from that, intended to bring us into conformance to that which is life. You know, in our relationship with God, uh, even though we're all uh, adults, many of us here are listening are adults, uh, online, uh, maybe some uh, youth as well. But regardless of your age, you know, to to God, it's like we're uh, maybe the the most immature is is like a one or two year old, and maybe the most mature of us is like a ten year old. Still, 
very limited knowledge that we need our dependence on God. We're never in a position, like a 10-year-old is not in a position to live life without parents. They need meaningful, uh, loving adults in their lives to guide them. Uh, Otherwise, uh, they will not uh, live well. The prophet Amos speaks to this uh, as well. And how the Lord reaches out to him. Israel was at a time of rebellion again in idolatry. That happened many times. And he reached out to them uh, through the uh, prophet Amos. And uh, uh, I learned of this scripture through a devotion that I read this morning. Uh, maybe some of you received that, that email that uh, has recently been starting to circulate. Uh, Brother Mark Varga has shared a devotion uh, this morning and th- that uh, connects well to some of the things that I'm sharing this evening. Uh, and uh, so he quoted from the prophet Amos. Uh, we'll look at some verses here between verse 6 and verse 11. He says, And also I have given you um, cleanliness of teeth in all your cities and want of bread in all your places. Yet have you not returned to me. I have withholden rain. Um, and so forth. Uh, two or three cities wandered under one, one city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Verse 8, and you have not returned to me. Verse 9, I've smitten you with blasting and mildew when your gardens and your vines and your fig trees uh, and so forth. Yet have you not returned to me? I have. Verse 10, I've sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt, he recalled to their memory, of course, they didn't live during that time, but the stories were passed on of the plagues in Egypt. Yet have you not returned to me? Five times in this passage, the Lord pleads with them, I've done this and I've tried to get your attention with this and I've tried to get your attention with that. Yet have you not returned to me? So we can see how the Lord intends for calamities and situations uh, for us to respond to to him, um, that we return to him, that we turn to him. Let's uh, take a look in detail here, uh, back to our main passage here in Second Chronicles chapter seven, verse uh, fourteen. There's a number of specific statements that he says here. Firstly, it's if my people. So the the focus of this passage is on those who identify themselves as God's people. So today, that would be the believers, the Christians. We identify ourselves as God's people. Uh, We are Christians. And so this specifically applies to us, that we humble ourselves. So this is the thing that he says, that people which are called by my name, we associate ourselves with the name of Christ, shall humble themselves. So that's the first step. Humbling ourselves is an acknowledgement of who God is. Our acknowledgement, our need, and our dependence upon him, that uh, we uh, don't get into ideas of self-sufficiency, um, like the five-year-old and six-year-old that says to the parent, I don't need you. We need God more than we recognize uh, who he is. And that is even to solve the pandemic that we are in. We're not going to be able to solve it just by human smarts. Uh, The next one, and pray. So this is communication with God, communion with him, part of the humbling and praying and acknowledging who he is. And we'll talk a little bit more about what to pray for. But 
part of in this passage, the pray is, and seek my face. So this is, I see this as a statement of relationship. God is a relational God, and he desires relationship. He's not one that is only to be uh, uh, feared like a force, like an impersonal force, like an impersonal God somewhere a billion miles away, uh, uncaring and so forth. No, he is a God that dwells among us. He is with us um, in his people through the Holy Spirit that we are given uh, in us, indwelling in us. He desires relationship Well, that takes effort, as we know that any human relationship requires investment and effort, uh, time and so forth, to seek his face. Then the statement, turn from their wicked ways. Um, But back one point about relationship. This is not merely, what should I do? You know, this is not merely, uh, the Bible is not merely a book of rules of how we should live. Um, and then the reward is eternal life. Uh, but it's about relationship with a relational God. And then that relationship extends into all eternity. So as he says here, turn from their wicked ways. So the assumption here, of course, is that his people are at a time of sin uh, where they need repentance. And so if we would look at that ourselves even, and so at this moment, um, even applying it to, to youth uh, that are outside of Jesus Christ, if you have not uh, repented from your sin and turned to him, then pay special attention to uh, this message and, and these uh, this next portion of the message, um, because it certainly applies to you too, but not only to you, because remember, he's t- talking to his people. So uh, this would be, uh, I would extend it, shall we say, to those who desire to be his people, but also to those who are his people. Is there some sin in our lives that we need to take this opportunity uh, as the Lord is calling global attention, shall we say, um, but also in a personal way? We say, well, where is there wickedness in my life? I'm, I am a Christian. I come to church. I, I, I don't, uh, I don't sin like the rest of the world. Um, let's take a closer look. Maybe there is something that still does uh, apply to you. And so we'll look at wickedness in terms of sin in three categories. The first category is the most obvious, the sins of commission. That's the lying and the stealing and the cheating and the profanity and the cursing and the drunkenness <clears throat> and the pornography and the substance abuse and murder and abortion and all kinds of lists of sins that even uh, those that are ungodly would recognize for the most part um, are, are undesirable qualities to have in a person. Uh, do any of these in some strain, perhaps in a small form, um, exist in your life? Have you been overtaken by one of these or more of these in your life? Then turn from it and repent, uh, and God will grant you grace of forgiveness. The second category is less obvious, um, and I'll call these the sins of the heart. Um, these are things like pride and selfishness, um, self-sufficiency. Uh, this is a big one in our world where we 
to a large degree, the world. Now, I'm talking about the world. Again, sometimes I'll sort of interchangeably talk about believers and talk about the world. Uh, but it rubs off on both of us, doesn't it? This aspect of self-sufficiency, where we think we're smart and we can do things and we can figure things out and so forth. And at times we forget, where does that knowledge and that wisdom and that ability and that strength come from? It comes from the Lord. And he reveals it uh, to whomsoever he wills and uh, allows those things to be discovered. And certainly we are at a time in our world where there is a lot of self-sufficiency, uh, whether it's self-sufficiency in knowledge, how much knowledge and have things people figured out in inventions and in science and technology and medicine um, and so forth. Uh, a tremendous amount of gains and knowledge and achievements have been made, indeed are noteworthy. Uh, but if we trust in those things, and if we praise those things, in a sense, that becomes an idol to us. We'll talk a little bit about idolatry in a little bit. But this self-sufficiency is certainly a humanistic idol of sorts. Uh, other sins of the heart, shall we say, greed and hatred and bitterness and envy, uh, covetousness and so forth. And as we touch on this aspect of idol, idolatry and human ability, whether it's in sports um, or the Olympics, uh, uh, sporting events kinds of things, or in expressions of the arts and theater and the movies, um, in uh, science, in medicine, in finances, in, in architecture, in, uh, and so forth. Is it possible that human achievement has been worshipped and is the prominent idol of the day? Is it possible, just as the plagues of Egypt not only showed the Egyptians that God is in charge and that he can cause these things, uh, my limited understanding is, is that each one of the plagues actually is specific and designed to demonstrate that God is Lord of that. And the Egyptians had particular gods that they attributed and thought were in charge of those particular things that could cause the plagues. Um, the weather and the animals and, and so forth. <clears throat> is it possible that the Lord is using this to bring the world to its knees? Has there been anything that has not been affected by this, the threat of this virus as so many things that are connected to human idolatry that we mentioned before in sports and in the Olympics is being talked about, maybe being canceled for this summer. Um, uh, arts and science and medicine and things that people trust in have been shaken. Brother Werner uh, referenced this aspect of shaken from the book of Hebrews, that as he shakes, as God shakes us figuratively, so to speak, but also in a sense physically, um, such that the things that cannot be shaken, meaning him and his kingdom cannot be shaken, will uh, demonstrate or stand out in contrast uh, to this. So that was the first category of sin, sin of commission. That's the most obvious. Sins of the heart, that's a little bit more hidden, but typically results in some sort of acting out. As you can see, we can probably draw a connecting line between every sin of commission is connected to one or more sins of the heart. Um, and these things are, are interconnected. But the third category is probably the least, um, shall we say, uh, recognized or understood in some ways. And I'll call that the sins of omission. And this is particular to the category of believers. 
uh, getting back to now speaking about those who call our, those of us who call ourselves Christians. Um, and it's directly related, shall we say, to one of the definitions of sin of missing the mark, uh, where we fail to do that which is expected of us uh, to do. Uh, and there we have some statements in the scripture such as, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And the failure to do that, <clears throat> the failure to do that is a sin of omission. We're missing the mark. Uh, this is not, uh, missing what God has intended for us to do. And then the next one is to love our neighbor as ourselves. Um, other s- examples of, shall we say, sins of omission is helping a need that God has placed us in a position to help. And we decide, I don't want to get involved. Um, we think, well, I, I haven't committed any sin. I haven't done anything wrong. Well, if God expected us, expected you in that moment to reach out to that need, it may be as simple as giving the person a beautiful smile, um, uh, an encouraging word. How much does that cost you? Failing to do that could be a sin of omission for you in that moment. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit. We are to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. We are to be fruitful as believers. Uh, virtues. Um, we are to be thankful and, and so forth. And so have you, have you thought about that? If you fail to have a thankful attitude and are grumbling instead, there's, there's two sins. The sin of omission would be the failure to have the thankful attitude. And then the grumbling would be the sin of commission coming from the sin of the heart. As you see how these things are very much interconnected. There are some very specific scriptures that give examples of the sin of omission. Samuel said uh, to Saul, he says, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. And I will teach you, but I will teach you the good and right way. So Samuel identified and recognized that his role was intercessory prayer for the king and for the people. And the failure for him to do that would be a sin against the Lord. Is that possible in your case? There are opportunities for prayer that you have not explored, that you have declined. You thought, ah, I, I, I don't want to take the time for that. Perhaps that's a sin of omission for you. Uh, James 4.17, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Broad, all-encompassing statement. And the third example is from the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 9.16, where he identifies, Upon himself was given the calling to preach the gospel. And he says, Woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel. And so, believers, each of us have a calling. And give an example from the Apostle Paul. The failure to live up to that calling. The failure to be diligent in that calling and to pursue it as the most important thing in our relationship, as, as an expression of our relationship with God would be a sin of omission for you and for me. Think of the sins of omission that could be in the relationship between husband and wife, uh, the, the kindness that is to be there if it is failed, um, or the building up of the relationship, um, or uh, respect towards father and mother, um, or respecting the aged, respecting the authorities. That could be a sin of omission. Um, respecting the Lord's Day, all sorts of things Christians do on the Lord's Day, failing to respect 
what God intended the Lord's day to be. I understand we are not under the same law of the Sabbath as we are in the Old Testament. However, Jesus made a very clear statement that it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath day. And uh, it is the Lord's day is intended to be focused on God. Is it possible that Christians in our country, in our church, in around the world, maybe we don't treat the Lord's day with the uh, respect or honor that it deserves, that the Lord deserves. These are examples of this scripture here where um, God says to Solomon, turn from their wicked ways. I would hope that by now somewhere one of these examples would have touched every one of us. That there's no one that can say, I am sinless and blameless in all of these things. If you think so, then probably your definition of sin is not stringent enough according to the scriptures. Moving on to the next statement here then, of course, is turn from their wicked ways. So we've identified wicked ways, but the point is to turn from. That's the word to mean repent. To change our mind about these things and to humble ourselves and turn to the Lord. Then comes this wonderful promise, he says. I will hear, God will hear this prayer and he will forgive their sin and will heal their land. It's his desire to give us blessing and goodness and meaningful relationship. And this is all within the character of God. May we, uh, one thing I want to make sure is that we don't misunderstand, as I said earlier, and want to, um, shall we say, reinforce it. Misunderstand the character of God, because there are many that would uh, want to blame God and shake their fist at God, so to speak, as why is God doing these things? And if God is doing like that, then why would I want to worship a God like that? That's a misunderstanding uh, of the nature of God. He desires your worship and uh, relationship, and it's for your benefit. What other alternative is there? There there is no other real God. You're going to worship idols. That's not going to help you. That's not going to solve your problem, whatever idols you turn to. The living God is the only um, solution to everything. And so may we turn to him. And he reaches out to us in terms of the gospel message. Let's focus a little bit about the, on the gospel uh, message as this is an expression of the character of God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the loving invitation that God extends to every person and um, desires that. Uh, Isaiah one eighteen says, uh, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Uh, God presents himself as a reasonable God, wanting to work things out uh, among, but it's on his terms. This is not on our terms. We, we don't decide the terms. Uh, God reaches out to us on his terms, which are the best terms. Anyway, if, if, if it were up to us, we wouldn't be able to figure out the right terms that would so, the, solve our situation. 
Um, it's like a, a two-year-old or a six-year-old trying to negotiate with the parent on, on the six-year-old's terms. Well, that doesn't work. Um, and so in similar way, we are uh, in need of God. And the beauty of the gospel message um, uh, produces a number of things as uh, we want to focus on now as we've, if we just sort of look at the, the progression of the message here. God is getting our attention. Whatever means it is, uh, right now we're in the middle of a pandemic, but there's many ways in which the Lord gets our attention and is intended to get our attention because he reaches out to us in love and offers us a means of forgiveness and redemption. And that means is the gospel through Jesus Christ as he came God in the flesh among us and paid the price of our sin on the cross and resurrected, demonstrating power and new life over sin. And so we're looking at a little bit about what the gospel does. Gives us a new identity. John 1, 12. But as many as received him, meaning Jesus, describing Jesus, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. This word power here describes the type of relationship that we have with God. This is an adoptive relationship. This is a privilege. This is a right. This is a a benefit. Uh, This word power describes in that sense an, an authority that he has given to us that we can be the sons of God, the children of God. And that sets us on a new trajectory. That sets us on a new path. This uh, idea of trajectory, you can think about, um, maybe you've looked at uh, graphs and things in terms of the results of the pandemic and how are things, and we've talked about, the, the, everyone's probably heard the term now about wanting to flatten the curve and what's the trajectory like now, uh, and so forth. And there's various charts that I've seen that, that plot different uh, countries and how they're doing and how rapid the rise is and, and where are they on that curve and so forth. And you can see what the trajectory is. If corrective measures are not taken, then it would um, be reasonable to speculate that it will continue on a particular trajectory. Well, applying this idea of trajectory in terms of our life, if we stay on a path of destruction, <coughs> it will end in destructive. That's the wrong trajectory. Well, this new identity in Christ by salvation, by grace through faith in Him, sets us on a completely different path and a completely different inheritance. No longer one of destruction. If we look in Colossians chapter 1, there's a number of significant statements that I'd like to point our attention to. Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet, meaning suitable, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints. He, God, made us suitable to be in, receive this inheritance, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Another way of describing this transformation of the trajectory of the path of life that we have. And so the gospel, new identity. The second thing, this element of power to overcome has delivered us from the power of darkness and has given us power over sin and victory. The third thing the gospel does, it gives us a hope and assurance. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 5, he says here, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you have heard before in the world of the truth of the gospel. The gospel is connected to hope. 
that we have regardless of the circumstances. And this is a sure hope. There's some number of statements in Hebrews that describe that this is not just a faint hope. You know, some people, when we, we use the word a hope in all kinds of scenarios. I hope something will happen, and it may be a very faint hope and has very little basis in reality. This kind of hope, the hope of the gospel, is much stronger than that, is a sure hope. We read in Hebrews chapter 6, describing about God making his promise in verse 17, and then 18, describing how sure that it is, because two immutable things where it's impossible for God to lie, that we might have strong consolation to who have fled for refuge to lay upon the hope set before us, which hope we have has as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. It's a sure anchor for the soul. Powerful hope. And the fourth thing that I want to point out as far as what the gospel does uh, gives us this element of confidence and boldness. If we look in Second Timothy chapter two, verse seven, uh, sorry, Second Timothy chapter one, verse seven, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I'm sure you've heard that verse quoted many times. This word fear uh, is in terms of being timid, not being ashamed, not being timid or afraid. In this context, verse 8, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, according to the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to his works, according to his own purpose and grace, which he's given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Long statement here. We won't be able to unpack all of it. But the main point here, God has not given us the spirit of fear in terms of being timid in living lives of the gospel and being standing up, shall we say, and being counted that I am a servant of God. I am adopted into the family of God. And that invitation is extended to others that are now living in hopelessness. Is there someone... Is there someone tonight that is living in a state of hopelessness? Are you paralyzed by fear and paranoia of what will be? What is going to happen to the world? What is going to happen to my job? What is going to happen to the the stock markets, uh, my investments with my retirement savings? What's going to happen uh, with the economics? What's going to happen to the world order? Are, are, maybe governments are going to overextend themselves uh, in debt, or governments are going to use this opportunity to seize uh, more control and be more controlling of the people. Uh, than they should be and limit our freedoms. And there's no end to the types of fears and concerns we have. And some of them are, are valid, certainly. They, that certainly could be. I'm not going to dismiss them all in that sense. But as believers, that's not the main point because our kingdom is not of this world. And while it's important in a sense for us to be informed and be in touch of these things, certainly to the degree that we can have meaningful conversations with others that may have those fears, but the main point would be to point them to the hope of the gospel because the kingdom of God trans is is above these things, transcends these things. And that is where our hope is. And therefore we need not fear 
um, nor be timid about believing in the gospel. Though the world may scoff at it and may say, what kind of God is this? And where is God if things are falling apart in the world? Well, that's precisely where God is. He's in the middle of all that, controlling it, even to the very detail, intending to bring about meaningful relationship and reconciliation. The last scripture that I'll point to is in Hebrews, because it talks, I'm going to expand a little bit more about this, about God's people calling upon him in prayer. And that's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. This is coming with confidence. This is what the gospel produces. We talked about the gospel produces a new identity, a power to overcome, a hope and assurance, and boldness and confidence to approach the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Are we in a time of need? Do you think this is just a time to rely upon human smarts and to put all our trust in those that are doing the research and in the medical professions and, and, uh, and in, in social distancing and isolation and so forth to, to stop the spread of the virus? Certainly, I believe those measures uh, sound wise to me, and so I'm going to obey the authorities in regards to those. But that's not where our hope and trust lies in, as we call upon the Lord in order to solve this situation, uh, to stop the spread and to heal those that are ill. Call upon him that we not be anxious or fearful, but that we have confident trust in his sovereignty. <clears throat> intercede for those that are working on the front lines in these kinds of situations, the healthcare workers and the researchers, and then the leaders of government and business and so forth that need to make decisions in response to this, and that citizens can be wise in doing our part, um, and so forth. Many, many different things to pray for, to express our dependence upon God, that we don't commit the sin of self-sufficiency, thinking we can solve these things on our own. Jesus said very clearly to his disciples, without me, you can do nothing. We are dependent upon him for everything. And then, of course, that we can recognize opportunities to share the hope of the gospel in these times. Um, I'm going to move on to uh, the song that we have next here. May the Lord bless the uh, preaching of the word. Um, And we're going to play a song from an inspiration hour at camp 2017. Uh, I need thee every hour. May we be led in worship that our hearts recognize the fullness of our, our need for Jesus every hour.